Welcome everyone to the very first episode of Rupture Radio, uh, a weekly podcast offering a critical look at news, politics and culture from a left perspective. As always, I am Jesse Nikeli and I am your host for today. Uh, I am joined here today by Dave Murphy. Hello. And Paul Murphy. Hello. And we have a special guest for our first episode of the relaunched Rupture Radio, Connor Reddy of People for Profit. You're very welcome, Connor. Oh yeah, yeah. Happy to be a part of history here, the first episode. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a big day in uh, podcast world. You know, everyone's all abuzz about it. I've heard. Uh, <laughs> You'll never believe it's not left inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a new logo, Paul, and everything. It's gonna be. It's it's all brand new. It's all good. Um. So yeah, maybe Connor, you could give a bit of an intro about yourself. We know you're in PVP. You're the candidate for Dublin Northwest. Um, anything else you want to talk about that you've been involved in? Maybe some campaign groups. Um, haven't you studied something that's very relevant to COVID nineteen <laughs> and everything like that? So <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't have a very relevant, but uh, yeah, I'm a PhD student at the minute, just actually starting a PhD in uh, immunology, looking at um, how homelessness and trauma affects kind of your body's response to different types of infections. So uh, yeah, it's been a, a, an exciting time uh, to say the very least to start that. Um, yeah. And I guess in terms of campaigns, um, I've been part of a group just very recently actually that uh, that set up the new campaign for an All Ireland National Health Service. So I get to talk a bit about that today. And uh, there's other stuff too, but sure, leave that out. Very good. Um, yeah, so today we're going to be covering a few different things. We're going to be talking about COVID generally in Ireland, the second wave, what it means going forward, um, what do we need to do, stuff like that. But I thought we'd kick off um, to talk about something a bit apocalyptic, it seems. Uh, it's the fires in the US, the wildfires that are happening. Um, it's just like it's just mad like to see it. Uh, the pictures online, like you know, did anyone see the fire NATO? Like that actual video of it was like a tornado of fire um, had like whipped up, and people were taking videos of it and stuff like that. It's just absolutely insane <laughs> to see it. Like I don't know, it's um, yeah, it's probably one of the biggest natural disasters in the US in recent years. So, and what was it caused by <laughs> that fucking? Um, gender reveal party was one of the causes did anyone see that like the biggest uh obstacle facing climate change movement is like the gender binary now so <laughs> people are moving over to which is which is funny but uh yeah and one of the factors is this company um pacific gas and electric which i think it's a californian privatized electricity company and i think for years they haven't been doing necessary repairs so mm. with the regulator or whatever is like you have to do these repairs and they have like repeatedly prioritized dividends for shareholders over doing the necessary repairs um like so it's like in a kind of microcosm capitalism it's inability to deal with climate catastrophe because it just treats nature as like an externality it's yeah it's a thing that you can destroy for free it's you can have like you know horrific forest fires that kill loads of people and as long as it doesn't interfere with your shareholder dividends, then you'll be okay. Like I was reading, even they've been, I mean, PG&E, they've been done for manslaughter of people previously over previous wildfires in 2017, 2018, Jesus. but they, like, they still continued with the same kind of approach. I was about to say, yeah, no, I heard about their involvement 
2018 fires and you think they'd have learned the lesson or there'd been in some uh, kind of action to force them to to, to change yeah. stuff but uh maybe they're just better at getting away with it this time <laughs> yeah, yeah a lot of these companies like they balance up like the cost of mm-hmm. like a natural disaster versus the cost of like improving their infrastructure and mm-hmm. like they come down on the side of well sure will cause a disaster but yeah. i think like the size of these fires is is mad like so i was looking at it like so in california there's like five thousand six hundred square miles of land burning in like oregon and moving up towards washington yeah. Like they have like 19,000 firefighters out fighting them. Jeez. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's massive. Like, you know, 19,000 people's job now is to try and put out these fires. All because, well, I know it's not all because of like someone had a gender reveal party, like, you know, yeah. but uh, further add to hellscape, I uh, heard a story that uh, apparently California, a lot of the time, the fire seasons, they depend on uh, convict labor crews to like fight fires. And apparently, because of COVID yeah. and outbreaks in some of the prisons, yeah, they I haven't been able to ship prisoners in to fight fires or cause a climate change. So it's really, really apocalyptic stuff. It really fucking is. Like, um, yeah, 40,000 people are under general eviction order at the moment. And um, Portland, Oregon has the worst air quality in the entire world right now, which is just like, I, like, it's just, is this just acceptable? Is everyone like, oh, OK, yeah, uh, like, let's continue on with our lives or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. It just seems that way that like a lot of people's answer I've seen online is vote for Biden <laughs> and that somehow is going to fix the fucking wildfires I don't know how like but yeah I do think like the, the ex- kind of the extent of the dystopian nature of it is just like in the pictures the thing that struck mm-hmm. me in the pictures from the cities where the cities are now just like red you know yeah. uh, it's not like you know in Portland in like loads of cities on the west coast um, and it does it's this like you know Rosa Luxemburg socialism or barbarism dichotomy mm-hmm. Um, the barbarism bit is getting more and more graphic and real for people where, I mean, climate change has been destroying people's lives in, you know, the less developed countries in the world well, yeah, yeah. for like all the time. Do you know what I mean? It's just not really a news story, but now it's coming to like the heart of world capitalism um, in a really blatant way. And yeah, like you say, the answer of loads of liberals is, oh, you have to vote for Biden, even though Obama has been out saying that, uh, yeah, we increased oil and gas, and that that was me. That was that me. Was me just, folks. That was me, yeah. folks. <laughs> like, oh, congratulations. That was just a couple of years ago, and like, it's not like everyone didn't know about climate change, and he was also, at the same time, trying to pretend that like, he, the Democrats are the people to, to stop climate change. But before the COVID apocalypse, like the first apocalypse, Apocalypse at the start of the year yeah. was like the world was on fire. Do you remember? Yeah. Like, remember, I, like, when the, someone Australia. said to me that was January 2020, I was like, yeah. what the fuck? <laughs> like, this and year. And then remember, last so year, there was major fires in Brazil and everybody was like, it was all mm-hmm, over the place. Mm-hmm. Like, And apparently, the fires are restarted this year. Like, they've kept logging and attacking, like, you know, like the, the, like, the tribes that live within the Amazon, like, and they're being killed at a higher rate. Like, but apparently, the fires mm-hmm. have restarted and they're up to the same level as they were last year like you know when there was a big outcry over it uh-huh. but um like obviously covid has distracted like media attention away from it like you know mm-hmm. but it's still like going on like the world is literally like that's i think North in South brazil America. as well the, like a lot of the fires are either the company's big agribusiness either turns a blind eye or has like semi-fascist paramilitary groups linked to them that are starting yeah. fires because basically it's about clearing out the indigenous people clearing out the land so that they can have like 
cattle farms, I think, is the main thing. Just they're big ranchers, and and but they're obviously encouraged by Bolsonaro and the right wing mm-hmm. regime. It's really there. worrying, actually, just how there might never yeah. be a recovery from this stuff either. And um, it's reading a good piece from Mike Davis there uh, last mm-hmm. week, and he was talking about how, like, uh, in some cases um, where there've been massive fires, uh, the kind of native vegetation, trees, and whatever doesn't grow back. It's actually replaced by like scrubland, and that causes an yeah. even bigger problem because that catches really, really easily and spreads the fire even deeper. So, uh, like, okay. is there even a possibility uh, that those areas could be rehabilitated or regrown if things keep going the way they're going? It's uh, it's it's really, really grim. The other place the fires are taking place is in, in the Arctic. At the Arctic Circle, there is like an unprecedented number of um, of wildfires over the last couple of years. And they're emitting huge amounts of CO2 because just underneath the ice is kind of basically bog, I think, yeah. that is basically burning away. And then the ice melts and then all the CO2 is, is released. So you see these like negative feedback loops and how the more conservative kind of estimates that, oh, well, if we get to zero carbon by 2050, everything will be fine. Is that in reality you're on a runaway train of, of climate change? Uh, well, uh, well, before that. To hear that there's fires raging in the Arctic, <laughs> it just doesn't sound right. Like it doesn't compute properly. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's actually that bad and yet still no one's doing anything about it. Like, you know. When you said that, Paul, <laughs> the fires in the Arctic, it's like, oh yeah, remember that. It's like these things have just become so normalized um, now. It's, it's, it's crazy. But mm-hmm. you're saying about mm-hmm. the Arctic mm-hmm. as well. There's a uh, methane gas that's stored under there. I remember reading a couple of years ago that uh, there's a threat if that's released really quick you could yeah. have these giant fireballs just like fucking flying through the sky um, and it could be like miles wide and torch the earth so uh, I think that's the that's the next thing we have to look forward to maybe in 2020 that's all we need right now isn't it yeah, yeah. 2021 is <laughs> looking good yeah <laughs> wait, did you see the, the FBI in America like having to come out and say that like anti-fascists aren't the people starting fires like so what? all the all the the like Trump heads were saying like all these world wars that are being started by like uh, like liberals and anti-fascists mm. like you know so like uh, in one town like the local cops put up a, a, a Facebook post saying watch out for people driving around starting fires and then like they were like they had to take it down and say yeah look we have reports of people but they're not actually starting fires and then the FBI had to come out and say like yeah no it's like people <laughs> aren't FBI. like <laughs> Antifa aren't going around starting fires like you know. And then I saw like some of the, the, the people like they were putting up videos like saying, you know, like the, the borderline between the US and Canada. And they were like, look at it, isn't it just like convenient how all these fires <laughs> just stop along this line? Like, you know, because like it was a US record of the fires like, and they were like, oh no, look at it. <laughs> so the only track fires in the US, like and they were like, look at they just stop right across the line there. <laughs> people were like, no, fucking, fucking idiots. <laughs> One funny thing unrelated, well, kind of related is, um, do you remember there's this fake ad on like some jobs website, supposedly from me looking for oh, protest yeah. actors, right? Which the journal that I did a fact check on and obviously found wasn't true. Like, obviously. <laughs> really? But, um, <laughs> but it, it's remarkable. That's how I, I was, got involved in Rise, I, Paul. But, <laughs> where do you think all that Patreon money goes, huh? Um, um, but where... Um, but I was looking at like a thread about the protests in anti-fascist protests in Galway over the weekend, mm. and then there's and like looking at like right-wing comments on it, and I was like, oh, these people look really familiar. I wonder if they were all recruited by Paul and PVP uh, through that job, and like they're being earnest about it, like they're really yeah. serious. Like, it's fucking mad. Like, like I've 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 a relative who's sort of into all this, like you know. And I do say to him, I do say to him, look. 
like you know you've known me all my life and you've known how many protests I've been on I'd be an absolute millionaire if I was getting paid yeah. for going <laughs> yeah. on a protest like you know instead of having to like, wish, like get a lend a week on me man that like you know uh, I'd, I'd be, you know what I mean I'd be living it up like I'd like, I'm like it's not real and they're like ah oh, but maybe you're not getting the money you know I'm like no it's just not happening and he genuinely believes that some people are getting money or at least is yeah, open yeah. to the idea that it's credible yeah. like yeah. I think they wow. think you might be swiping a bit off the top you know I think that's what crazy <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, moving closer to home, uh, we're going to talk about the new lockdown, lockdown take two, 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Um, so Dublin's at a level 3.5 now, and it's looking like everywhere else in the country is heading to level three. Does anyone even know what that means, really? Like, I, you should be like... a nightclub in Talak or level three. There it is, there it is. The messaging is just all over the place. I don't know from what I'm seeing anyway. It like I don't understand what's going on at all. I'm sure the people living in Dublin don't fully understand it either. I don't know. I think like, one thing that's really striking is uh, I've seen some of the figures for uh, the breakdown across Dublin, different local electoral areas. And uh, I noticed my own area, Dublin Northwest, has a, a case instance like 265 per 100,000. Mm. So right, right at the top of the table. And then you look at the bottom of the table, you see Black Rock and Stillorgan and Dunleary and all these kind of more affluent areas. So I think it's it's been really striking how it's shown yeah. and brought these existing sort of inequalities uh, to the surface. Yeah, like I think I remember a few years ago, there was like a survey that kind of touched on that point about uh, it was in... West Dublin, difference between Mulhudder and Castleknock in terms of your survival rate if you got, I think it was uh, cancer and maybe another disease. And like if you lived in the Castleknock side of the ward, like, you know, like a couple of miles away or whatever, like uh, you had like a two or three times higher chance of living compared to someone on, in the, the poorer area. And it relates to like just like economics, like, you know, mm-hmm. people are more uh, yeah. people are more wealthy in certain halves. I mean, I think what's, what's going on there, it seems to me, and maybe I'm missing some factors, is um, probably the number one thing is the types of jobs that people have. Yeah. So like working from home is like definitely more of a white collar phenomenon than a blue collar phenomenon. Do you know what I mean? If you work in a shop, if you drive a bus, if you do loads of jobs like that, you can't possibly work from home. So mm-hmm. if you work in the IFSC, if you work like in the city center in like, you know, a reasonable office, you can work from home. Whereas you know, a lot of people don't have the capacity to work from home, which then means they're like, or potentially picking it up. And then the other big factor is probably housing density Mm -hmm. where um, just people all living together. Like there's so many people. I mean, Tala Central, where I live, is the second highest area in the country. I do think an additional factor is the fact that we have Tala Hospital and a lot of hospital workers that like, I think that bumps it up above Mm -hmm. like Tala South or whatever. Um, But I'd say it probably is those things um, and but it's also if you look in the u.s there's a there's been a big debate about like like black people in the u.s have proved much more susceptible yeah. to getting the virus and dying from the virus and there is no you know there's no genetic element or anything to that there's no like nonsense race theory in relation to it but it's because again it's the kind of jobs that people have it's the kind of housing density um, that people have and it's the existing like pre-existing conditions and stuff that people have which all flow from like big inequalities in society exactly like you, you saw last week or whatever when um, it was taught for a minute that Stephen Donnelly might have had it and mm-hmm. the whole doll got closed down within an hour. Like everyone was sent home, everyone was in their car already off home. Like, do you know what I mean? I don't think that would happen if you're working like, you know, your average job, say in the meatpacking factory or in a care home or wherever it is. Like if there's any even risk of getting COVID, you're not going to be sent home with full pay and all that. Like, you know, kind of shows up exactly where their priorities are. 
think yeah, that, that that point as well uh, that like people in like this isn't a new phenomenon it's not something that just is unique to covid like people in working class areas have worse health mm-hmm. outcomes for almost every major disease a killer heart mm-hmm. disease cancer all of these different things i think uh, an interesting one that i actually i'd lo- love to see some research on would be the effects of uh, air pollution air quality mm-hmm. poor air quality because we know yeah. like coastal more affluent areas have better air quality than places mm-hmm. like say uh Tala or places on the m50 belt yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which are more working class so that'd be an interesting one as well i think good to dive into this definitely I saw a funny tweet saying for the restrictions for Dublin like it was like do people understand what they mean you know right it's not level 3 it's not level 4 it's in between and I said like Stephen Donnelly says it means you have Dublin has one foot on the trampoline you know oh <laughs> <God>. <laughs> thing about the trampoline um, yeah but um, like I think like how quickly it's spreading like and if you look at like the ICU cases uh, mm-hmm. going up I think they said last week, like the government launched like their winter plan, and this was like to help. Mm-mm-mm. They're saying like we're gonna like every year the health the health service has like a crisis at winter. There's like trolleys, there's like the places just jammers, and like this year they're like, oh, it's gonna be the worst winter ever, like you know, because they have COVID on top of it. And I think like if you look at like the winter plan that they put out, like it's um classic. It's sort of like classic. Generally, every time there's an election and a new minister for health is put in and he comes in the first week and he says, I'm going to do this, this, this and this, like, you know. And you're like, that sounds wonderful, like, you know. Yeah, and then, yeah. like, none of it ever happens, like, you know. I think it's like that's in a what, job interview and you're like, oh, yeah, I can do all, I can use Excel, no problem. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm too much of a perfectionist. That's my, one, that's yeah, my yeah, greatest yeah. weakness. I think I'm too punctual is, is my problem. <laughs> yeah, didn't your one, uh, the minister for mental health and the elderly she like left the press press conference answering any questions or anything like that after launching that new winter plan or something she was just like out the door and uh Stephen Donnelly wasn't there because he's sick so <laughs> it was just like no, here's yeah. the plan see us we're, we're gone like I don't know it seemed fairly dodgy like but within the plan like there's, a, there, there's the outlines of a new deal with the private hospitals to come back up like so they okay. can provide cover again Mm-hmm. So just presuming like everything goes to shit, like and there's you know every hospital bed is full and the ICU is packed, and um, that they can do a new deal with the private hospitals to reopen that capacity, and that they'll also then um, like obviously COVID is causing a major problem for other types of treatment that they can refer people then to the private hospitals more than they already do on the treatment purchase scheme where they where, where they pay privately yeah. for public patients to get treatment. So it just shows like that within the whole thing, like it's like still business as usual in terms mm-hmm, of like mm-hmm. the model of well like the private sector will lease money off the taxpayer to provide services that the state should be providing it's, anyway it's like, kind of nuts yeah, really like just to, even before this winter plan the, the new government's approach to health is to beef up the national treatment purchase fund and give more money to private hospital operators mm-hmm. to provide care that like the public system should be capable of providing so you're kind of caught in a vicious cycle where you become more and more dependent on the private system mm-hmm. and uh, i guess that's really where the campaign I mentioned earlier, the All Ireland NHS stuff comes in because, you know, it was a really key moment when that hospital deal is done. And I think it raised pe- questions in people's minds when Donnelly said, mm. or Harris at the time actually said, um, people should be given care, access to care based on their need. And if, if for COVID, why not for a hip replacement <laughs> yeah. or cancer or anything else? So uh, I think now was an important time to push this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they will probably do this new deal because I don't see how... Like the ICU numbers are very scary at this stage because mm-hmm. our ICU capacity, I mean, we have half the EU average. That's one of the reasons we're so vulnerable. Um, so it's very likely that they're going to do a new 
deal and they'll do a new deal without ever releasing the accurate figures um, yeah. about the last deal. Do you know what I mean? So we spent ages. We put in freedom of information requests. We asked repeatedly in the doll. We did parliamentary questions to try and get the breakdown of the cost of the last deal because according to what's reported, it looks like we're paying four times as much per bed as they were pay- as the, an equivalent deal in, in Britain with the NHS and their private hospitals. Um, and obviously what it poses, I mean, the way it was reported around the world, a bit like in Spain, is like, oh, Irish public health service, they took over the private hospitals. But like, actually, no, like we gave guaranteed income to people mm-hmm. like Larry Goodman, who's making money on the one hand from the meat factories. And then at the other end of the scale, that's a consequence of the coronavirus, like running through his meat factories to make money off the private hospitals deal. Um, and obviously what we should do is like, yes, we do need this capacity and we should take it. We should bring them into public ownership, bring them into a public uh, health system. Because exactly as Connor said, like I did, I think it's very useful politically that Harris said that because he said it explicitly, you know, nobody should be treated differently for COVID based on wealth. And it just begs exactly the question that Connor said. But again, it's kind of like similar to the, we're talking about the the fires in the US or whatever. It's just like, because nothing's like having a definite solution to it, you know, it's going to be ongoing for years and years and years. And like, this is like the foundation that the government are laying now during the second lockdown of COVID, you know, it's going to impact next year and the year after and the health system in general in Ireland, if they keep just like, you know, throwing more money at it that they don't actually have or whatever it is they're doing, like making these random plans up and kind (laughs) of hoping it's going to work, you know, like unless they actually make like big decisive moves, like you're saying, like taking the private hospitals or, um, you know, actually like guaranteeing these figures are correct and not just something that they're promising or whatever it like it's just going to keep continuing on i think and like i think the first lockdown you know people were willing to give the government a bit of the like benefit of the doubt and stuff because like mm-hmm. no one knew what we were doing we were all kind of new to everything and if they messed up a bit you know it was like fair enough because like this is unprecedented and all that but like the first lockdown was supposed to buy time for now you know and like again mm-hmm. it's like it just shows like a lack of pre-planning because no time has been bought. Like we're going back into lockdown straight away. There is no, barely any respite between the two lockdowns, really like, you know, apart from the fact that people were able to kind of go back to restaurants and pubs and stuff like that, which has just made it worse again. Do you know what I mean? Like the government saying it was safe to do so. Well, and it, the really it infuriating thing you know? I think is like you say that no time was bought, but when we got to June, July time and the cases mm. were down, we could have bought ourselves time. We could have really pushed for to- mm-hmm. for suppression, for eradication or zero yeah. COVID as sometimes it's called. And I think that would have put us in a much better position. There'd been light at the end of the tunnel for people that are sort of afraid at the edge of stuck indoors and in terrible economic mm-hmm. si- situations as well mm-hmm. because of lockdown. So like that's a massive failure. It needs to be pointed out that like we're in this situation because they refuse to do that. And because they refuse to, I think, use the capacity in the private hospitals actually chip away at the waiting list. Because that's a, another thing barreling down the road. There's just 611,000 people, I think, now on waiting lists, the longest it's ever been for outpatient care. Um, like That's going to have a massive consequence. It's not going to leave us for a couple of years, like if, if even that. Okay, yeah. I think that's really important to like, because I think that generally has been lost and people don't even really remember that like in June, we had a phase that it was like phase one, two, instead of levels, we were in phases at that stage and we were supposedly working through the phases and then Varadkar accelerated through them with the agreement of Simon Harris and the government, all these people who were like, oh, they did such a good job. Um, they're responsible or at least bear an important part of responsibility for the situation we're in now. And why did they do it? I think there was two factors. One, they were under real pressure from private sector lobbying by the vintners, the restaurants, etc., to like 
we have to reopen the economy. And two, a big factor for Varadkar, I think, was politically, before he handed over to Martin, he wanted to give his speech about, we might still save a little bit of the summer, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and that was just like, and I, even I, I remember talking to a political like commentator person who said a few weeks beforehand, oh, Varadkar wants to do this before he leaves. Like, you know, it's just yeah. like, and like, and that's the point is like, they, these people treat zero COVID as like, you know, a ridiculous dream. You can mm-hmm. never, you have to learn to live with the virus, et cetera. But like countries have managed to achieve effective suppression of the virus, i.e. eliminating community transmission. It doesn't mean there's no cases, but it means when there's cases, you find out, you can find them very, very quickly and then isolate it and deal with the problem. Like every community transmission case, when you hear about that, what well, that means is they don't know where someone got yeah. it. And if, if you, we had used the position we were in in June, combined with extensive testing and tracing, you could you could achieve that and you could stay on top of it. And it means people could live as opposed to this current situation. And I think like, I think Jesse was making the point saying like about, you know, people become afraid around the edges with lockdown. And I think like, if you look at like the stuff that's happened now, which will be different to the previous lockdown. So they've cut the pandemic unemployment payment. Mm-hmm. They've knocked it down. Now there's talk about them being under pressure to put it back up in the budget. Um, but they've done that. Um, you've obviously had like to be like an attempt to open up and then shut back down, which obviously looks bad for them. But I think then um, there's like two sets of workers being the like there's obviously the situation the the meat plant, but then like there's health workers and teachers who are being forced to go back into yeah. uh, workplaces. So I saw of uh, yesterday I think um, a story about like the high number of cases now that have been confirmed in the last few weeks amongst health workers in Ireland who are obviously being forced to go in um, they're working in the hospitals and they're getting infected but then I think like the situation in the schools now with the teachers like with the vote for industrial action is going to really like put the question of like well what's a safe workplace what mm-hmm. it, what does you know like living with the virus actually mean you know mm-hmm. does it mean that people are forced to go into uh, classrooms get ill um, and then you know like classrooms go into lockdown like there's been a huge number of of schools where they've, they've had confirmed cases and people have had to be sent home Mm-hmm. Um, but even the way that they're operating now in schools going into the winter when it's going to be freezing like so like there's loads of cases where uh, the windows in the classroom are left open all day right fair enough but then at lunchtime all the kids are forced to go out in the yard like you know with seven coats on them like you know to eat that lunch out in the yard before they mm-hmm. come back in and like in a couple of weeks like we're nearly in October it's going to be like mm-hmm. Baltic outside it'll be you know pissing rain like what are you going to do with them then like you know it's just it's unworkable no, I was just, just going to say it's 250 different schools now that have had outbreaks across the country and they're still denying that that's a major vector for transmission. I mean, they're talking about household transmission as well. They're yeah. blaming it on house parties, but like you don't have the detail, obviously granular details make a decisive conclusion. But I think schools, kids coming home, giving it to their yeah. parents, their brothers and their sisters, that's 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 clearly happening here now. And like they're not they're not acknowledging it. And it links to housing as well, where you'll have three generations yeah. or overcrowded housing. So the kid goes into the school, gets it, comes back in, affects like maybe two or three people. And then you may have like, you know, like a family that live like with, you know, like grandparents and mm-hmm. kids and grandkids. Like, so you can see it going up the line, like, and that's where you get the, you know, like the private household spread. And that's part of like the figures are kind of distorting. When the government focuses on, the government says, oh, it's all household, it's all household, it's all household. I heard one of the people from Neffet on the radio last week and they explained it quite well, actually, that like that's where it shows up because they're the ones they can actually trace. You know, if like 
yeah, someone goes back into their family home, a kid goes in from their school into the home, they'll all get it. And so let's say six people live in the house, five of them will be put down as household transmission because they got it in the household from the kid. Mm. The kid will be put down as community transmission because we don't know where they got it. So therefore, it looks like, oh, the big majority of cases are coming from the household. But like, it's getting into the household from somewhere. And where it's getting into the household seems overwhelmingly coming from indoor settings. So workplaces... And schools, which are things that the government simply doesn't want to talk about. Like we we looked at the figures during the week to kind of prove the point that um, the percentage of cases that are now coming from, that are now experienced by school-aged people um, is, is shot up. It's more than doubled as, as a percentage of the total weekly cases. So if you go back to mm-hmm. June, about four or 5% per week were like kids, you know, who would be school age. Now that's up to 12 or 13%, like, and course that relates to schools because mm-hmm. it's all and, that, and that's the thing about ventilation as well like more and more evidence is saying that it's airborne like that's how a, a huge amount of transmission is happening so you, you have to have ventilation like and 85 percent of schools have inadequate ventilation and it's expensive like and the government's like oh we gave the money so yeah the money is to pay for like hand sanitizer yeah mm-hmm. great and some masks whatever great but like the big money is to do capital work on schools so you actually have ventilation systems so kids don't have to freeze or get coronavirus this is it exactly i think it's like the government's living with covid like whole strategy is like putting all the blame and responsibility on individual people you know rather than actually stepping up to the plate and saying no this is our responsibility as the state as people you've elected to look after you and make sure it's all okay you know um so instead of them being like yeah we're gonna put proper ventilation in all the schools which they could do because you know like that's Mm -hmm. possible um they're saying, oh, like if, if you get it, like it's your fault and stuff like that. And like they've done a good job at like instilling that in people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was like a survey done. I'm not sure where exactly it was done, but like 70% of people surveyed were saying that if someone gets COVID, um, they would say it's like at the fault of that person that mm-hmm. got that, that got COVID. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's so unfair because it's like, it's just like you could do everything right. You know, you could do everything right. You're supposed to do, you could wash your hands 25 times a second. You know what I mean? You could do it all. Um, <laughs> and you, well, yeah. But, <laughs> um, but the thing is like, <clears throat> if you're working in unsafe conditions, like you could still get it out of no fault of your own you know um and like yeah i don't know the government have done a good job at making people think like it's all the, their fault you the know? government are afraid of setting precedents too i mean like the thing around class sizes like the largest class sizes in mm-hmm. europe that would have been a very obvious place if you had money to invest to to, to put it to mm-hmm. maybe use other spaces to take certain numbers of students and to hire teachers but hiring teachers is a dangerous precedent to set because it means then you're locked in yeah. to people get used to having 20 kids in a class instead of 30 odd and mm-hmm. perish that thought jesus yeah same with the health workers you know what i mean they had this big appeal for like health workers to come back from around the world and then they kind of employed or certainly employed a bunch of them on like agency contracts where they can just get rid of them where they don't have any permanency don't have any decent terms and conditions because they don't want to establish norms that are then people say well well we got this during covid why can't we why can't we keep it they didn't even have a fucking right to sick pay the health workers which is absolutely nuts (laughs) that's crazy yeah, they still haven't hit their target, you were saying, Paul, like about the testing and how important mm-hmm. that has been in other countries and stuff like that. They had a target of 100,000 tests a week and they still haven't hit that even. That was at the very start of <clears throat> COVID, wasn't it? They said that set that target. Um, and Denmark have, they test like 200,000 a week and they're roughly the same size as us, whatever, you know. The government made a big deal of hitting a million tests 
last week or the week before last, you know, and it's like, oh, look, where everything's back. Even like this is like you're saying, like months and months after they originally yeah. launched the target of 100,000 in Denmark, they've done 2 million uh, tests. And like it is like there's loads of countries where you can just if you feel unwell, you can just go to your local test center and get a test. Like obviously tests should be freely available for anyone who wants them. Whereas like now they are rationing tests. There's no way to avoid it. Like mm-hmm. they, 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 they're definitely rationing tests. They, they stopped doing testing in meat plants three weeks ago or something, basically because they were at their testing limit or in schools. I mean, it's quite mad. Like yeah. if, if you're a school, if you're like a pupil in a school and you're supposedly separated into different pods and someone in a pod gets it, in, they're not in your pod, even though you're in this tiny classroom where there's like close to 30 students or whatever, um, you won't necessarily get tested. Like it's it's really mad. Like and it, it, if it wasn't a shortage of tests, it's clear that you would test everybody in the class, everybody in the school. You know what I mean? You just mm-hmm. roll out the test. Like the, the more people are getting tested, the better because then you can quickly find stuff. I think what's what, what's wild about the testing is like Ireland has the capacity to do this stuff. Like we have a massive pharmaceutical sector. There's yeah. private capacity that could be taken into public control to do this stuff and on a proactive level as well i mean our testing system isn't set up to hunt down the virus to actually go after it and yeah. uh, i guess push it out of the population it's more reactive and it's to contain spread rather than to eliminate uh, transmission so if we did take those private resources into public control you probably could get to a situation where you had it deeply suppressed but again it's the unwillingness to set a precedent of mm-hmm. uh getting in the way of private business yeah and i think that's just like the whole thing is that like their messaging is just like going all over the place they don't even seem to know what they're talking about half the time and it's like i think it's because they're pandering to different businesses and they're pandering to different sectors of the economy and stuff like that and one day you know it might be the restaurant association that's putting too much pressure on them and then the next is the pubs or whatever it is and like that's why like they're saying oh yeah we're doing this all for the good of the public health whatever it's not they're doing it for the good of their own profits like um and i think that's why it does seem like they're just talking out of their holes like because it's just like i don't know it it just seems so all over the place it just doesn't seem possible that they have any sort of plan (laughs) together at all like it was funny during the week when they were doing so this argument that paul was making there about um like they're counting as household transmission but that like somebody brought it into the household from outside, like, you know, so whether it's a workplace or a school, but like when they were moving Dublin to 3.5 lockdown and the restaurants had to close, they're like, but we've had nobody sick mm-hmm. in our places, like, you know, and I think the guy's name's Philip O'Neill from Neffet. Is Philip Nolan? Oh, Philip Nolan, yeah. He came out with a thread and he was like, well, no, you know, like if we, d- our, tra- our track and tracing thing does only goes back a couple of days, but if we went back four or five days, We'd probably find that somebody picked it up in the restaurant. They were asymptomatic for a few days, then they brought it into the household. Um, so it was like it was like you couldn't get around it. Like I think like Oibeck and the restaurant association were all on saying this is like outrageous, blah blah yeah. blah. There's no health reason for it. But like where did they think themselves that like the sickness had come from? Like, do you know? But it is yeah. like this language around confusion, right? So it's clear that there is confusion. People's perception, I'd say if you ask people your average person on the street, how would you define the government's response to COVID? They'd probably use the word confused or yeah. something like that, right? So that's widely out there. But it's it's used, like, confusion is created by, like, making exceptions um, for private companies, conceding to certain private lobbying efforts, right? That's, that's where it comes from. That's why they mm-hmm. opened the pubs, supposedly, like, dry pubs instead of wet pubs, because they were under real pressure from the vintners. Um, and they're like, okay, we do this. 
But then, like, the private sector lobbying organizations are like, ah, oh, but it's confused. What, a nine-euro meal? How does a nine-euro meal protect you? Yeah, of course, yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't. But it's about, like, choosing, oh, well, we open certain things, not other things or whatever. And then, like, they try and use it. And it was interesting because, like, the government and Nefes have been quite slow in pointing to workplaces, restaurants, schools as being the space of mm. transmission. And it was only kind of whenever they were under then real pressure from the restaurant industry who were then like reflected in the general population who understandably, if they're not explained that like, oh, well, actually this is where it's happening, then people are like, you know, we want to go, we want to have lives that's completely understandable. Yeah, then under pressure, they came out and admitted the reality that of course transmission is happening in these indoor venues and had to explain it but it precisely shows this inconsistency caused by kind of pandering to private profit interests as mm -hmm. opposed to what you would do is you support all the workers you make sure you support small businesses so then people can go through these things and we can eliminate the virus mm -hmm. i actually think this is uh, quite dangerous on another level as well this kind of confusion lack of clarity because mm -hmm. it, it's feeding like a lot of people were kind of revolted seeing the anti-mask kind of brigade on the, the streets and in the growth of this sort of conspiratorial thinking but this is where it comes from this exactly. lack of kind of explaining the logic of the restrictions being obvious logical inconsistencies and stuff that you touched on paul and uh, yeah, th this is where it comes from and I think if you want to win people like it's, it's not good enough to say trust the science you actually have to mm -hmm have some level of clarity and uh, it's been a big problem I think just in science generally that like the conversations are had in an ivory tower and science isn't something people mm -hmm. can engage mm -hmm. with ordinary people can't engage with it and it's designed that way nearly people are alienated from science right now and like kind of the space for conspiracy theory is expanded by the gap between reality as it actually is and the appearance of reality and there is a gulf between that it's not in the way people think it is it's in a very different way and like a part of that is people are very alienated from the whole process of science and science mm -hmm. is like inevitably has to be super specialized do you know what i mean in, in order for connor to go and like do like groundbreaking research he can't just be like oh i'm doing science he has to do this particular thing because he like, looks it up on youtube phd out um but like f i think actually like a social society would find a way to like overcome that alienation between mm -hmm. like very specialized knowledge which exists and like public education about that public control over it so it's not all driven by private corporations and like private corporations at once remove private corporations funding research institutes which then fund students mm -hmm. but clearly private corporations like so actually like that's obviously not the main thing that socialism would do but i think for this conversation it's one of the interesting things that socialism would would do is like you know publicly owned research and all that i think that's like really possible as well because like even in just like past campaigns and stuff like that like say even with repeal or whatever people started off like being involved with that with like no information about the law mm -hmm. about like pregnancy or like any sort of like medical um cases or anything like that and like the amount that people learned over like a short period of time really like you know what i mean like i know fully now about like um fucking constitutional law and stuff like that and you know what i mean like something i had no idea about before sort of thing so like it is possible i think it just needs to be like you're saying like um in the right way like that public education like it is possible to do there have been periods actually it's interesting like because it used to be this group in america called science for the people and they kind of founded they were founded um the time of the vietnam war when obviously there was this mm -hmm. mass kind of defection of scientists who said that they weren't going to engage with military industry or research and defoliant started being used to to cut down the forests in, in vietnam mm -hmm. and i think like there was obviously a tremendous amount of specialist knowledge is needed to actually develop all of that stuff but the way that they 
brought the conversation very active way into the public domain around something that's a motive for people at the time of the war it did mm-hmm. it did help and engage and there was an after effect I think for a decade or two where people could engage but science is so more commercialised today and I think the influence of the, the pharmaceutical industry in particular and all the commercial mm-hmm. secrecy there it just cuts across that completely and it, it really has created a situation where it's just for the experts and you have to trust the experts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that, that's really it yeah, I think like there's two things here. So I think like as COVID has developed, like our knowledge of it has changed. Okay, so you'll always see the conspiracy theorists getting a man. What's his name? He's from Trinity Lu- Luke O'Neill. Luke He's a O'Neill, doctor, yeah. and he was saying masks are masks are useless. Like you know, he said that at the start of the thing. Then as the understanding uh-huh. of it changed, now like obviously like we realise that masks are are needed. You know. And I think, like, explaining, like, he's obviously not going to come out and be like, oh, yeah, I was wrong, like, you know, because yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a scientist, like, but, like, I think explaining that to people, like, you know, like, being like, well, look, our knowledge of it develops, like, you know, because, mm-hmm. like, the amount of times I've explained that to people online and, like, they're like, yeah, yeah, but you still said it. And they're like, yeah, of course you said it, you know, <laughs> did you say stuff last year that was wrong, like, but I, 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 th- I think, like, so I'm writing an article currently for the next issue of Rupture, okay, the magazine on, like, the search for a vaccine and is, mm-hmm. you know, like, the idea that, like, capitalism is the most reliable thing but like it's actually been like eye-opening like when you're doing research on it like in terms of so like all the anti-vaxxers are like oh big pharma like you know and like the role that big pharma play in like pharmaceuticals and medicine like if you think about it like so like the best example is probably like insulin in the US where you see how like they, they get like the, the patent on it and then they have control mm. over that and then they can just up the price as much as they like like you know um, and then like say stuff like do you remember those or can be um, yeah. a drug for I think people with multiple cirrhosis nah, cystic oh, fibrosis yeah, yeah. Oh, cystic fibrosis yeah and like yeah. That, I think they charge like 105 grand a year like to keep someone mm-hmm. alive so like within the anti-vax thing there's like you know big pharma like you know but like they're not looking at the correct thing in terms of the role mm-hmm, that big pharma mm-hmm. plays like they're profiteering off it and like um, like one of the things is like that after like the SARS outbreaks and all like there was like a load of research done into getting a vaccine for that like and then they were they were close to like having uh-huh. some type of development like and then all the funding was withdrawn from the research because they were like oh yeah SARS is under control now we don't need a vaccine there's no like actual profit to be made rather than this idea Jesus. of like science for people's sake like you know like the basic background research science understands yeah. how the body works how uh, how things re- react to it and how in the future like well you know all the experts are like oh we were always going to have like some type of coronavirus outbreak um, and then they're like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely going to happen. And like, they just like didn't research it or didn't do that. Like, I think it mm-hmm. shows like how like science for like profit versus science where if you are like, if you're like, yeah, this is going to happen probably sometime in the next 10 years. Let's put a lot of research into it yeah. like, and have something ready to go. But it's, it's one of the areas where, um, where the, you know, the, the whole illusion of capitalism is that the drive for private profit uh, is the best innovation. way, most inefficient, <laughs> most efficient way to lead for like public good in general like that's that's the whole basis of which the theory is is built but it's so obvious that that doesn't take place in terms mm-hmm. of like the pharmaceutical industry so for example um pe- companies like Pfizer spend in an average year 27% on marketing of of their total expenditure and 11% on research right so they're not <sighs> because they have these different companies set up which compete with each other including in terms of research they they spend more like 
marketing, for example, often products that are exactly the same, yeah, marketing yeah, yeah. them in a way to pretend that this is like faster acting, gets to the source of pain quicker. But also the stuff that they choose to research, they, they choose to research like marginally better painkillers because you know, mm. loads of people in like richer countries in the world get headaches as people around the world do, as opposed to researching to cure AIDS or like whatever stuff that they can't make as much money from or there's like a longer shot that they will find it. Like it's it's mad. And if you had to vote about stuff like that, I think everybody would vote. You know what I mean? Well, let's let's do the research on yeah. curing AIDS. Um, let's do the research on uh, like SARS type uh, viruses. But the, the logic of private profit means they definitely don't do that. Yeah, but I mean like two uh, like something like two thirds of the money that goes into pharmaceutical research is paid by the state. So the state go in, pay a load of money, you do the background work, all the research, then like what usually happens is that the pharmaceutical company will come in, will buy the research will go off, develop a product, and then, like, the state will end up buying back their own research in product form, basically, um, and then putting that into, like, uh, like your hospital system. So the state pays for the research, they just produce it, and then the state comes back and pays double for it. Like, it's unbelievable. Like. It's, it's wild how, how much innovation is actually stifled by a profit mm-hmm. system or science based on profit. Um, like... The majority of, I think, pharmaceutical industry research is on me too, what are called me too drugs. So like small changes that you make that have no functional consequence whatsoever, but allow you to mm-hmm. extend the patent period for a particular uh, drug or whatever. Okay. So yeah. it's, it's, it's that. It's also the fact that like when you have that public research done, as a public researcher, you can't really go anywhere with that unless you go to private industry and you sell your idea, you sell your soul. And they have then mm. exclusive rights. And a lot of the time, there's some really cool stuff that, that's developed in public research institutions. And it sits in a shelf in a pharmaceutical company or it sits somewhere no one else can look at it, research it mm-hmm. or try to develop it. So. I guess like science under socialism would be it allow that stuff to develop more organically. It allow kind of mm-hmm. ideas to work off one another, and uh, that's 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 completely stifled as long as you have a for-profit system. I think in science, and I think mm-hmm. if you look at like the COVID nationalism that we're seeing now, like you know, it shows how bizarre this is. Where you have countries rather than like humanity pooling its resources, mm-hmm. come up with a vaccine to treat people. You have countries all doing private deals with different companies. You know, like, so, the, like, in the US, Trump has, like, Operation Warp Speed, like, where he's pumped, like, 10 billion. What a name. <laughs> <laughs> he's pumped, like, 10 billion into, like, uh, I think seven or eight different uh, vaccine trials, like, you know, to companies. So, it's basically a public-private partnership where the state mm-hmm. is paying for the research and the company will own it. And, like, it's in return for, like, whatever, 400 million doses if it's done. Mm-hmm. But, like, what's going to happen then is, like, well, yeah, they have exclusive access to this and it works, just yeah. say, right? Well then what's the rest of the world gonna do? Like because like this company are gonna like put a patent on it. It'd be like two or three years like waiting for enough doses to be created mm-hmm. when you have all these different pharmaceutical factories all around the world that could all be working to do it uh, straight away. Mm-hmm. It just shows how mad it is like literally like states are gambling on like it's like it's like a horse race basically. You have like whatever number of different com- companies, all with different and you're sticking like your, I'll stick a billion there, I'll hedge another yeah, billion yeah. over there, like, you know. Just on that uh, warp speed thing, actually, another scary prospect is that uh, they've uh, got this emergency use authorization that allows them to kind of speed through the usual trial process. I think yeah. the Russian vaccine effort has done the same, and so Sinovac in China. So this actually... Sputnik, yeah. <laughs> Sputnik, yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, like, if, there's, if there are adverse events, which there are with any medicine or uh, medicinal mm-hmm. product, like, it's going to further feed into this anti-vax mm-hmm. stuff because they've yeah. sped through the process. So it's, it's worrying, worrying stuff. 
Definitely. Um, I think as well, obviously, it goes without saying, an NHS is needed in Ireland, massively yes. so. And we, we were talking about the backlog of cases and waiting lists and everything that's not just going to go away once we get a vaccine or if we if we get a vaccine, you know. Um, so maybe, Connor, you could tell us a bit more about that, seeing as you're one of the people heading up the campaign at the moment. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, I guess, yeah, we're, we're a couple of months ago now to, to campaign for an All-Ireland NHS. And we're a group. We have some we have a lot of health workers involved, health unions, some county councils and trade union councils have come on board. And I guess really we've seen uh, around the time of the private hospital deal that and the investment that was put into the health service, all these things that they said were impossible before were all of mm-hmm. a sudden possible. So we've seen it was necessary and it was also possible so I think we decided we push for it and kind of tr- popularise the idea and I guess since then we've been just flabbergasted it's so popular with people how hasn't this happened before um, yeah. and I guess yeah w- w- with the campaign we're looking to push out a little bit now um, I guess the All-Ireland aspect is maybe worth drawing out a little bit Um there's still not uh, an all-Ireland testing and tracing system. So you have places mm-hmm. like Donegal, where there's a lot of cases now. There's not a complete testing and tracing kind of integration uh, with Derry right next door, Tyrone right mm-hmm. next door. So I guess um, there are some schemes that exist in all-Ireland based in health already. The cross-border initiative is one of them. There's others too. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, yeah, just on a small island at six, six million, six and a half million people, it makes no sense that you'd have two separate systems or three actually because you have the private system as well alongside it. So mm-hmm. what we call for, and I think it's a way of really uniting working class people across the country, a single tier system that looks after people according to their medical need and also I think looks after healthcare workers there was massive and historic strike action last year in the south yeah. and in the north um, and i think this really gets the heart of this what type of economy are we after covid uh, and heading into climate change are we uh, an economy of growth and profit or are we an economy of caring and repairing and uh, and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff so i think it has a, a bit of resonance at the minute and uh, we're hopefully uh, hopefully going to grow on the ground now in the next couple of months I think one of the interesting parallels there as well is that the context in which the NHS in Britain was built. Yeah. Um, and obviously the NHS started out, I mean, in Britain now it's pretty creaking because of cutbacks and stuff. Mm. Um, but um, it, it was built in the context of the aftermath of World War II, um, soldiers, people who had stayed at home, having a sense that, you know, we fought for you know, what people perceived as fought for democracy against fascism. And we went through all these sacrifices and now we want like, you know, a society that people can live in. Um, we want a society with decent welfare state, etc. And in that context, you had a Labour government under pressure from below, which brought in the, the NHS. And it, it is worth thinking about whether in the aftermath of COVID, you might have some sentiment like that, where people have a sense that we've gone through, you know, it looks oh, like a year, back. year and a half, two years of like sacrifices, mm-hmm. supposedly all in it together, when clearly we're not all in it together. Um, and people saying, well, if we could do this, to tackle coronavirus as inadequate and as problematic as it has been, well then like, you know, we want to pay off now um, in terms of society. We want investment in building decent public health service. We want investment in housing. Mm-hmm. I think it is possible that you could see an explosion of things like that and governments come under real pressure from b- below for people looking for you know, meaningful improvements in their lives with climate change at its core as well. No yeah. going back. That sentiment, I think, is really yeah. powerful and it's yeah. something we have to mobilise a bit better. Um, in Britain, actually, there's an even more interesting parallel. They had a system during the war called the Emergency Hospital Service, which is um, okay. like the private hospital deal in some ways. It didn't uh, involve complete control of like the privately controlled hospitals, but that was a forerunner to the NHS. So it was actually a call to extend that service 
uh, that 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 was in that fight. So uh, there's a good book by a guy called Lee Humber that goes through it all. And it's just I, I was reading it and I was like, this is so like now. Uh, uh-huh. And now is mm-hmm, the time mm-hmm. to to really strike on this stuff. Yeah, I think that what you're saying there about like, do we want a system of growth and profit or do we want that care and kind of thing or whatever? Like, I think if you're looking at US at the moment, you can kind of see where Ireland could be headed very shortly. You know, if we don't actually kind of change how we're doing things like there's that, I don't know if anyone saw this new app called Civil. um, And basically they're like marketing it as uber for evictions um and it's where you can like go on this app and you can hire someone like a landlord can go on the app hire someone to carry out the eviction for them basically they don't have to get their hands dirty you know um and more and more people aren't being able to afford their rent in america right now and so the market provides and now we have private eviction teams that you can hire at a moment's notice um it's fucking gross <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> disgusting but like Ireland, like I was saying, is like not far behind. Like we have the ban on evictions is off now, you know. Um, there's been the moratorium on rent or whatever is going to be finished soon and stuff like that. And like, um, yeah, it's it's where we're heading as well. Like it's, it, I feel like kind of looking at the US is kind of like a, and you look in like one of those mirrors in like a sci-fi book or something, it shows you your future kind of thing. I feel like Ireland's just like following behind like a little lost puppy or something. I don't know. <laughs> It offers people the chance to, quote, be your own boss with flexible hours, mm-hmm. looking for self-motivated individuals with positive attitudes, fastest growing money and making gig due to COVID-19. Yeah, it's obviously You need gross. a positive attitude to fucking know. evict someone from their it's, home. Like, yeah. That's necessary. Exactly, yeah. Jesus. But it is this, you know, it's like this Jack London vision of like paying off a certain section of the working class to evict the other section of the working class is obviously mm-hmm. completely gross. Um yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, Blade it's like there's an element of it. Like, I think, like, all right, the Uber thing, like, in terms of evictions, like, it's obviously, like, you know, this idea Paul said, paying off somebody who's in, you know, a bad situation themselves. Look, if you go and evict these people, we'll pay it alone. But I think, like, there seems to be, like, groups already operating that way within Dublin. Like, if you look at some of the mm. evictions and, like, these, like, fellas too, like, remember the one, the Reclaim the City one? But then there's been yeah. other normal evictions where gangs of blokes torn up in a van like to fuck people mm-hmm. out of the house like you know so there seems to be like like they're obviously not advertising it on uh, Uber um, but maybe on that job website Paul where you were advertising for protesters <laughs> you, you, you'll get an ad for like man in van to go and kick uh-huh. people out of the house um, but it seems to be operating already like you know that like mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm, landlords mm-hmm. and there's a, a probably a number of different groups that are just doing it almost always the same people as well so i was involved in take back the city and i've been involved in kind of anti-eviction stuff since then and it's it's the same three or four companies every time that are implicated k-tech is one of them they're quite strongly they're they're actually the security company that are are working for debenhams as well uh, and Mm -hmm. keeping the stock and uh uh, and stores safe so like there's there there are scabs for hire uh the the new development i guess (laughs) the f yeah now it's just all organized in a nice neat little app isn't that lovely <laughs> um i was there was an eviction there was an attempted eviction in my area this week start last monday i think and um actually it's kind of a good news story in the sense that if people resist and this doesn't have to be some physical thing but if people refuse to leave encourage campaigners to come and assist them it is possible to resist so without going into mm-hmm. the details of this story effectively like 
there was definitely an illegal eviction notice given to this person to say you have to leave. And then like two hours after we arrived, it's like, oh, sorry, it's all a misunderstanding. Like mm. it definitely was not a misunderstanding. Like, I saw the eviction notice, it was legal. And, but because people just stood up for their own rights um, and said, we're not going to leave, we're not going to make ourselves homeless. The landlord was forced to, to back off. So it just underlines that need to people to get organised. Yeah, there been exactly, some yeah. really good examples of that recently. The Berkeley Road one was, I think, amazing mm-hmm. to, to, to see. And I was down a couple of times visiting, but um, like a group of people being thrown out and victimised, I think there's an element of racism involved as well. But seeing the mm-hmm. community response actually opened up the place, put them back into their homes and for two days solidly worked on the place. Like there's new toilets put in, there was carpenters working on doors and stuff that were broken by the, the, the eviction crews. Mm-hmm. And it just shows the kind of power that we have got when we're organising come together. And I guess the solidarity that exists there as well. We're not tapping on an empty well here. Like there are actually people don't like evictions. People are willing to help one another. And uh, I think, yeah, that, that was a really powerful example of that. Yeah. One thing related to that is just definitely that people should get down to their local Debenhams if they have a local Debenhams or oh, yeah. a non-local Debenhams if they don't have a local Debenhams to help out with the, the pickets in the coming week because it does look as if no, the likes of time. KTAC and so on are getting ready to to move and attempt. There was, there was various attempts at different stores to to move stock. Um, so yeah. we're getting down to the business end. We're going to link the uh, Google Doc again in the description so people can sign up for a few hours if they have in their week or whatever. So that would be great. And yeah, on that note, on that note of positivity at the end, uh, we're going to finish up there. Um, so yeah, this is Rupture Radio's starting point, like you said, Connor, historical. Um, we're going to be launching a Patreon in the next few weeks as well. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And if you want to support the podcast, that would be great. Um, also, if you're on Apple Podcasts or anything like that, you please leave us a uh, review and tell your friends and subscribe and everything like that we want to make this podcast uh, the biggest and best it's been so far so yeah thanks everyone for the continued support and thanks for the support in the future that I'm sure people are going to continue <laughs> um, so yeah thanks everyone for coming on thanks to Connor thanks for having me, yeah. um, it was great we'll definitely get you on again for sure and just for the, for the Patreon we should have like the different levels should be like at 10 euros you get like one protest actor at 20 euros yeah. you get two protest actors <laughs> 50 euros you get extra bonus one like you get 10 or something you know exactly yeah, the three yeah. levels of protest actors you <laughs> can just like have little mini protests in your house if you know say your, yeah. your mom's pissing you off or something you can like yeah, bring a guy a <laughs> sounds good yeah <laughs> all right well we'll be back again same time next week thanks everyone for listening bye, bye. Bit of makeup